East, the vast Persian Empire ruled almost all the known world. In the West, the once great Greek city-states, Thebes, Athens, Sparta, had fallen from pride. For a hundred years now, the Persian kings had bribed the Greeks with their gold to fight as mercenaries. It was Philip, the one-eyed, who changed all this, uniting tribes of illiterate sheep herders from the high and low lands. With his blood and guts, he built a professional army that brought the devious Greeks to their knees. <laughs> Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 3.4, The Rise of Macedonia. A quick announcement before we begin. If you are listening to this podcast on YouTube instead of the regular podcatchers, please hit the subscribe button below the video. Also, please make sure to hit the bell icon to the right and choose all notifications. That way, you will automatically be notified as new episodes load. I've been asked questions about the numbering scheme that I'm using. So just to clarify, episode 3.4 means that this is the fourth episode of the current season. Now you'll see the number in parentheses, uh, that'll be episode 10, and that is the total number of episodes since I started the podcast. Also, I have tried to set the podcast up so that the coin in the cover art shows up in the cover art for each episode. Now not all podcatchers are cooperating with this, Apple. And so you may not see the cover art display, the coin that I'm talking about in each episode when you are watching it on your podcatcher. Now, obviously, if you watch this on YouTube, you will see an image of the coin. But if you want to see images of the coins I've been talking about, you can go to my website at veryoldmoney.com. Again, the website is veryoldmoney.com. The coin in the cover art today is again from our old friends at Classical Numismatic Group, LLC. And you can visit them at www.cngcoins.com. www.cngcoins.com. Now on to the show. In the last episode, we saw Philip II stabilize a disaster for Macedonia and get himself elevated to the throne. Now for the last couple of episodes, I have belabored the point of army quality. And this is with good reason because Philip II is the man who constructed the military machine that would march all the way to India. The biggest change in the military reforms of Philip came to the peasant levy infantry, which, like peasant levies throughout history, were always looking to return back home to the harvest. This was replaced with a Theban-style phalanx, but not exactly. Throwing spears were replaced with 18-foot-long pikes called sarissas which were long enough and heavy enough that they had to be held two-handed. The phalanx typically had a 16-man line, and so when it advanced, the first four to five ranks would charge with the pike aimed at the other army. And this, because the pike is 18 feet long, it's stretching significantly ahead of the formation, and the remainder held their pikes up in the air to disrupt missiles. Now, this was a very scary sight for opposing armies, including hoplites, because these infantry formations could not reach the root of this porcupine charging at them 
because they generally had short swords or throwing javelins. But this was not all, because unlike most of Greece, the Macedonian army was a combined arms operation. In the last episode, I mentioned the aristocratic companion cavalry, which had already won renown as mercenaries in other Greek wars. The new Macedonian army was, would use this cavalry in conjunction with the Sarissa phalanx. So as a result, the opposing army could not just focus on the porcupine. They had to deal with cavalry slashing at it on the flanks and in the rear. Most Greek city-states had not paid much attention to cavalry. It was expensive, and outside of Thessaly, Greece was not really horse country. This was a weakness that had caused the Athenians some grief in their first campaigns against the Persians. However, the Persians did not possess heavy infantry on par with the Greek hoplite. The Macedonians soon did. And even here, Philip tweaked the strategy. Other Greek city-states formed their cavalry in square or diamond formations, and Philip, possibly inspired by the diamond formations used in Thessaly, organized his in a triangle with the commander at the head. The advantage of this it was unit flexibility, and because the rest of the unit is following the commander, it's much easier to wheel about following the commander. But obviously, with the commander at the head, he is exposed to serious injury, and numerous battle wounds suffered by Philip and Alexander would attest to this. During his career, Philip would be maimed in his hand and a leg and would lose his eye in a siege. Now this shock cavalry had its limits. It would not be used in headlong charges against formed-up infantry. Remember, the invention of the stirrup, which totally revolutionized cavalry warfare, is still a few centuries away. And it's even further away for its introduction to Europe. Until it showed up, this limited what cavalry could do. Over time, Philip significantly expanded the size of the Macedonian army. As previously mentioned, during the reign of his brother and before the military disaster, Macedonia could field 10,000 infantrymen. By the end of his reign, Philip's standing army was about 24,000 infantry and the cavalry had risen from 600 to 3,000. Now the average foot soldier earned a drachma a day and cavalrymen earned about 3 drachma a day. So this is a significant financial burden. This also changed the military dynamic of the day. City-state hoplites were still often volunteer soldiers. City-states could not field standing armies of this magnitude for an extended period. In the last episode, I mentioned how Macedonia was punching below its weight. Now, soon, it was punching at or above the weight. The new military machine was intensely drilled and trained, and obviously it did not spring into being overnight. But something changed very quickly when Philip became king, because the military reforms appeared to have started right away. The peace treaties he signed at the end of last episode lasted only a year. In 358, King Aegis of Paeonia died, and Philip immediately attacked, defeated them, and forced them into submission and tribute. Paeonia was no longer a threat. Then he turned north towards Upper Macedonia and an old friend Bardylus. I mentioned previously that there were a number of sub-kingdoms of varying degrees of autonomy on Macedon's periphery. Elimea and Iordea had remained loyal to Macedon. Pelangonia was a traditional Athenian ally. Lynchestis, where Philip's mother was likely from, Orestes, and Typhomea had ties to Epirus. But right now, a lot of Upper Macedonia was under Bardalus' occupation, and as a result, many of these sub-kingdoms were under his hegemony. As Philip moved north, he appears to have made the second of his many marriages. This one to Phila of Elimea, one of the kingdoms I just mentioned, 
this was a kingdom known for its cavalry. Now, even though Philip had made a marital alliance with Bardalis, he was not going to stand for Bardalis holding on to Upper Macedonia. And so the two armies met in battle. They appear to be a they appear to have been evenly matched in numbers with about 10,000 infantry and 500 to 600 cavalry. But by now, Philip was implementing his new and as yet untested Sarissa phalanx. And he was up against a battle-hardened Illyrian army and a grizzled warrior who had a lot of experience thumping the Macedonians. Philip's new pikemen were placed in the center with hired and native hoplites and cavalry at the flanks. As the Illyrians charged, the pikemen held and they pushed the Illyrians back. As more and more Illyrians entered the field, the front lines were being pushed onto these long pikes, and tired of becoming hedgehog fodder, the Illyrians gradually started falling back. And as they withdrew, they were harassed off the field by cavalry and hoplites. The allegedly 90-something Bardylus himself was among the dead. Diodorus Siculus, who wrote in the 1st century BC, wrote that about 7,000 Illyrians were slain. Now, even if the Illyrians did not lose 70% of their army, they still lost a significant amount. And this was a huge victory for Philip. They soon sued for peace and withdrew from Macedonia. Having resolved the situation in the west, Philip now moved east. First up on the border with Thrace was the strategic city of Amphipolis. Now, not only did this city control access to Thrace, control of the city also provided control over forests that had provided wood for shipbuilding, and gold and silver mines of Mount Pangaeon. The city had once been controlled by Athens until the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians really liked access to those forests to build their triremes, and the Athenians would have liked it back, but the locals did not want to return to Athenian rule. So when Philip laid siege to it, he tricked the Athenians by promising to return it in exchange for the city of Pydna. Whether he would have kept his promise will not be known, because as Philip began his siege in 357 BC, Athens was distracted by the social war between the Second Athenian League and some of its confederate allies who wanted out. Stretched to its limit, Athens was in no position to intervene, and Philip took full advantage of this. Amphipolis was eventually stormed and taken, and then Philip moved on to take Pydna, and the Athenians, hoping that he would eventually give them Amphipolis, did not intervene. But however, his next step led to the break with Athens. Philip won over the Chalcadian League, by taking the city of Potidea in 356. Now the problem was, the city had an Athenian garrison, and so Philip had to expel the Athenian garrison before handing over the city to the League. He did allow the Athenian garrison to leave peacefully, but this attack marked a turning point. Athens was still mired in the social war, so they could not intervene directly, but they could still pay people to do its dirty work and it tried to do so by hiring the Thracians and the Illyrians. However, Philip turned on each of them in turn before they could combine, and was victorious again. Now with this defeat of Illyrians, the troublesome border principalities like Lyncestis were completely incorporated into Macedonia. The kings of these principalities lost their titles, they were incorporated into the royal court, the young princelings and noblemen would be brought up in the Macedonian court along with Philip's children. And over time, these principalities would provide a surprising number of characters that will play a huge part in our story following the death of Alexander. Lyncestis provided Leonatus. Orestia provided Perdiccas, Seleucus Nicator, and Pausanias, at whose hand Philip would meet his end. 
Elimea would provide a number of generals and officials, Cleander, Harpalus, Coenus, and most notably Antigonus Monophthalmos. And naturally, incorporating these territories directly into Macedonia was a big boost to Macedonia's manpower. As these campaigns were going on, Philip made what would be his most noteworthy marriage. The bride was Myrtale of Epirus from the Molossian tribe. The next year, Philip's horse won the Olympic Games. And to commemorate this, Myrtale was renamed Olympias. And that is the name she is known in history. The same summer, on the sixth day of the ancient Greek month of Hecatombion, which corresponds approximately to the 20th of July, in the year 356 BC, Olympias gave Philip his son, Alexander. The birth of a son made Olympias for a long time the chief queen of Philip. Two years later, she would give him a daughter, Cleopatra, who will also play a part in our story. And Philip was not done campaigning yet. In 356, he defeated the Thracians and took the town of Crenides, originally founded by Thesos and which controlled the gold mines of Skaptehaili. Philip fortified the city, filled it up with colonists and renamed it Philippi. And that is where the coin today comes from. It is a gold stator, 18 millimeters and 8.58 grams. Now, while the Greek states did produce gold coins, silver was much more plentiful and more common. Philip and Alexander would have a lot more access to gold and would thus issue many more gold coins. Now, the obverse of this coin has the head of Heracles facing right, wearing a lion skin. Now, remember, Heracles is the alleged founder of the Macedonian royal house. And if you remember the coin of Alexander posted at the beginning of this season, you can see some similarities between that and the portrait of Alexander, which obviously begs the question whether the Alexander Her Heracles coins are actually Alexander's portrait, unless there was a big family resemblance in all these depictions of Heracles. The reverse of this coin has a sacrificial tripod, and it has Philip's name as Philippon in Greek going up the left field, and to the right of the tripod is the head of a horse that's facing right. CNG has provided some additional information about this coin. Crenides had previously produced one series of Attic gold staters with the head of Heracles on the obverse and the tripod on the reverse. This first issue was very distinctive in that the paws of the lion's skin did not cover Heracles' neck. As Philippi, this town would continue the production of staters in two series, the first without the paws covering the neck, and the second from which this coin is apart with the lion's paws in the more conventional location closed around the neck. Minted alongside the stator were also silver tetradrams of a weight standard conforming with the standard employed by the Chalcadian League, Acanthos and Philip's royal coinage. Gold production at Philippi was short-lived as the second series was suspended before the end of the 340s. And all of that was from CNG. Now some of you ancient history buffs may have heard the name Philippi before. It shows up prominently in history 312 years from now as the site of a climactic battle between the armies of the Second Triumvirate led by Mark Antony and Octavian against the so-called liberators led by Brutus and Cassius. The death of Brutus and Cassius and their decisive defeat would end that phase of the civil war that commenced on the assassination of Julius Caesar. But we digress. And Philip was not done yet. He moved on. He took the towns of Marinea and Abdera in Thrace in 355. 
and in 354 he moved on the last Athenian possession in Macedon, Methone. The most notable item of the siege was the arrow Philip took in his right eye, which had to be removed surgically, which is why the clip at the beginning of this episode from the movie Ale Oliver Stone's Alexander, which we will be reviewing after the death of Alexander, calls him Philip the One-Eyed. Now even with this injury, he was able to force the surrender of the city. And that is where we will stop with the campaigning for now. In just five years, Philip had flipped the strategic situation of Macedonia. The Illyrians were gone. The kingdom was united as never before. It had a standing, battle-hardened, trained army with the acquisition of gold and silver mines, the ability to pay for this military machine. Taking advantage of Athenian involvement in the social war and the peace treaty that allowed many of Athens' allies to break free that weakened Athens, he had all but eliminated Athens' influence in the region. While it was not yet clear to the other Greeks, there was no other Greek state left that could single-handedly take on Macedon. Sparta had never recovered from his defeats by Thebes a decade later, and Thebes had not recovered from the death of Epaminondas. The Chalcidian League was allied to Philip, for now. The coming decade would display the brute reality of the rise of Macedonia to the rest of Greece, as Philip turned his one-eyed gaze south. So join us next time in episode 3.5, The Sacred War. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a 5-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. This is a new podcast and good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you for your support.